You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 21. If you are new here, you're visiting with us, we've been working chapter by chapter through the book of Acts this year, and today we find ourselves with Paul arriving into Jerusalem uh, in Acts chapter 21, verse 17. So let me invite you to turn there and follow along as I read our text this morning from God's Word, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 22, verse 21. So Follow along as I read from God's word. I'll pray, and then we'll get to work seeing what God has to teach us this morning from his word. Acts 21, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, He related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews uh, of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the court that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two, cha- with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. 
for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I am imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over their garments of those who killed them. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we read these accounts of Paul returning to Jerusalem, seeing the commotion that awaited him at the temple that day. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and grace and kindness. Lord, to be faithful to Jesus. Lord, even in great animosity and confusion. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this year is 2020. Maybe you didn't know that. But it's been quite a year, hasn't it? 
And I think this year, above all other years, has in a lot of ways exacerbated the, the clash of differing consciences in our culture. I mean, by every measure possible, I think we've seen conflict increase this year, haven't we? After all, it's an election year. So we expect perhaps the political clash that we're seeing, but the clash of consciences due to all sorts of issues has just spread from race to justice to COVID-19 response to wearing a mask versus not wearing a mask and so much more. And now after the events of this last week, you can throw in the, the nomination of a Supreme Court justice into the mix. Right? And social media, in so many ways, tends to push us all to the extremes. It eliminates any sort of nuance about these issues, and it allows people to rather easily demonize, the, demonize those who, who disagree with you even in the slightest way. So while the political parties rage, we perhaps expect that, but the church has in a lot of ways found herself right in the middle of all this clashing of conflict people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, people who believe in the authority of God's word, sometimes come to differing opinions in terms of how to handle these cultural issues that we face this year. Now, while I hope every Christian would agree about the, the evils of racism, and why every Christian would agree on the importance of loving our neighbor in the middle of a pandemic, we have seen that, that Christian consciences differ in how we address many of these issues. And these are divisive times, but we aren't the first generation to live in divisive times. As Paul goes to Jerusalem, we see that he is greeted warmly by James and by the other elders in the Jerusalem church. But some of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are growing increasingly concerned about rumors they're hearing about Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. They had heard that Paul was encouraging not just Gentile Christians, but Jewish Christians to ignore the law. So the Jerusalem elders propose a gesture that Paul can perform to alleviate some of those differing consciences in Jerusalem. But Paul's presence at the temple leads to a mob, a lynch mob, forming, making slanderous and hostile accusations towards Paul, ready to kill Paul for what they believe to be a, a sacrilege against the law and the Jewish way of life, particularly as they learn of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. So Acts 21, verse 17 through chapter 22, verse 21 the passage we just read, I think it provides us with a lot of wisdom for the year 2020 as we're learning how do we address these clashing of the consciences that we have seen happening this year. So how do we respond to clashing consciences within the church? How do we respond to hostile consciences from the culture? I think in this text, we see some answers to both of those questions. And I think Paul provides us a compelling example of how to honor Jesus Christ even in the year 2020. So let's learn from his example. Here's the sermon summary if you want to jot it down. When consciences clash, respond with charity and clarity. 
When consciences clash, respond with clarity, uh, charity and clarity. So we're going to first think through that initial question I proposed. How do we handle differing consciences within the church? And so again, I want to highlight, I think, three things we see here about how Paul responded to this potential conflict within the Jerusalem church over his ministry. And the first one is keep central our unity in the gospel. Keep central our unity in the gospel. So as Paul and his team makes his way into Jerusalem, we're told that the brothers received them gladly. The next day, Paul meets with James. He meets with the the half-brother of Jesus, the author of the book of James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he meets with those other elders there. And by this time, most of the apostles have largely spread to the ends of the earth. They're no longer based in Jerusalem. And so James is leading the church in Jerusalem along with the elders there. And Paul shared the the work of God that had been taking place among the Gentiles. He gives a a missionary report and and they share all these wonderful uh, events that has been taking place in Ephesus and in the region of Asia Minor. And the Jerusalem church is just encouraged. The elders are excited. And then they glorified God, we're told, when they heard the news about what God had been doing around the world. And so then the, the elders begin to share with Paul about how God is still working among the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea with many thousands coming to know the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. So they celebrate. And I think Paul and the Jerusalem elders show us one of the ways that we can handle differing consciences in the church. And that means we keep central the gospel. We keep central the gospel. Throughout the early church, we have seen the early church struggle with the inclusion of the Gentiles and what it means for the Gentiles to become a part of the church and whether they needed to follow the law or not. That had been a tension point for most of the early church's history. And even though the elders are going to inform Paul, hey, there's some issues, some tensions that we need to think through here about these Jewish believers and concerns they're having about their ministry. The first thing they do, though, is celebrate what God has done. Celebrate their unity in the gospel. Celebrate the gospel's advance among the Jews and the Gentiles. You see, within the the local church, there will be at times matters of conscience that differ from one another. It happened in the first century church. It happens in the 21st century church. But we have to keep the gospel central in our fellowship together. So what unites Redemption Church isn't politics. It's not our position on economic issues. It's not our position on masks. It is, and always has been, and always will be, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So therefore, when there are differing matters of opinion on cultural matters, we don't use those issues to drive a wedge in the fellowship of God's people. Paul warned the Roman Christians not to do that, not to quarrel over matters of opinion. Look at Romans chapter 14. It should be on the screen what Paul wrote to the Roman church. I think this bears repeating for us today. It says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one, or let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who wears. 
for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or fall, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So what Paul is helping us understand here, right, is that we cannot let matters of opinion or preference become a source of quarreling in the body. We have to guard against this quarrelsome spirit about these current matters of controversy that we find ourselves facing as a church and as a culture. And this includes not only what you say in conversation here on Sunday morning, but it also extends to even what you put online. Social media is quite effective at a quick jab or a left hook, but it's poor at the sort of humble conversations we Christians ought to aspire to have with one another, even in disagreement. So keep in mind that a quarrelsome spirit on social media is no different than a quarrelsome spirit in person. After all, your family, your friends, and yes, even your church is reading what you post. So don't quarrel over opinions, over preferences. Keep the gospel central to your life together as a church family. It's imperative that we do that. And we see James and Paul and the rest of the Jerusalem elders model what it means to keep the gospel central even in disagreement. There's a second thing I think we can learn from these brothers. Secondly, we have to address areas of differing conscience with humility. We have to address those areas in which we disagree with humility. So after this joyous kind of reunion where where Paul and the elders are sharing about what God is doing, they're celebrating about the gospel work that they've witnessed. So then the Jerusalem elders begin to bring to Paul's attention a concern they're having about the church's unity. One of the elders' most important jobs in the life of the church is preserving the unity of God's people. And here we see the Jerusalem elders wisely pick up on an area in which there might be some division in the body that they want to try to address and prevent from becoming a a rip in the congregation. They want the Jewish believers in Jerusalem to receive Paul's ministry with joy, but there are some Jewish believers who are still very much committed to observing the law. And rumor has it that Paul has been teaching Jews in Gentile territories to give up observance of the law and even instructing those Jews not to circumcise their children. Now, if you have read Paul's letters in the New Testament, you can understand how people might start getting this impression about Paul and hearing some of these rumors about Paul. So why was this such a big deal to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem? Because they were committed Christians. They were saved by faith, but yet these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem still valued their cultural identity and the traditions and practices of their heritage. Even to this day, many Jewish Christians choose to assemble in Messianic Jewish congregations for this reason, where they confess the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah, as God, as King, but continue to observe the law of their cultural heritage. For Jews in Jerusalem, we can understand then why they might be a little concerned about Paul, and they might be a little worried about this rumor they're hearing that Paul is instructing other Jews to forsake their Jewishness 
in order to become Christian. (coughs) So what was Paul's actual position here? Well, Paul strongly condemns, and this is what we have to remember about Paul. He strongly condemns any notion of salvation by observance of the law. He is absolutely clear on that point and that principle. I mean, just remember what he wrote to the Galatians, right? Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So again, we see clearly in the New Testament that Paul is absolutely insistent that we are justified by faith alone, not by observance of the law. But even though Paul strongly rejects any idea of the law as a means of salvation, Paul never discouraged Jewish Christians from observing it. We see Paul in Acts do just that. We have seen that when Timothy first joins Paul in his ministry, that Timothy first joins, he has this Jewish brother circumcised so as not to be a stumbling block to Jewish missions. Now, Timothy didn't have to be circumcised for his salvation, but Paul chose to have Timothy circumcised so that he could keep the door open to the gospel among the Jews in his ministries. We also see that in Acts 18, verse 18, Paul had taken a Nazarite vow. So so it doesn't seem to be that Paul just completely cast aside his Jewish culture and heritage after he became a Christian. So speculation was beginning to brew among the Jews, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that, yeah, Paul was a Jewish believer, but they, they were beginning to wonder, was Paul causing other Jewish Christians to stop observing the law? Of course, that's a false one. But again, that was the rumor going around about Paul. So what did the church do? Well, the Jerusalem elders first let Paul know what's going on. They raised this question to help those with differing consciences about the observance of the law. And since Paul was not encouraging the Jews to forsake the law's observance, the elders propose a sort of gesture that would help clarify any confusion to the Jewish Christians in the city. They offered for Paul to take four men who were under a Nazarite vow, and when the Jews made this vow, they abstained from strong drink, they didn't cut their hair, and they took of this vow. And when the vow concluded, they would shave their heads and they would offer a sacrifice at the temple. So the elders suggested that Paul pay the cost of their offering as a sign of his support for Jewish believers who continue to live under the law. So even though both Jewish and Gentile Christians were not required to observe the law, nor were they saved under the law, the elders said, well, this act could help assuage some of the consciences of Jewish Christians who continue to express their cultural Judaism. So Paul agrees. And so the next day, he goes with the men. He provides the offering for them. We're even told in verse 26 that Paul purifies himself. And what does that mean? Well, it's a little unclear exactly what's going on here, but most commentators have proposed a few different reasons. I think the most likely is that 
according to Jewish custom, if you were a sojourner traveling out of town into Gentile areas, when you came back to Jerusalem, you went through a seven-day purification period through the sprinkling of water. So this purification rite Paul goes through so that he can have access to the temple to help these brothers in their fulfillment of this vow. And so Paul's willingness to observe and to go through this purification ritual and to make this provide this offering indicates that Paul did not disregard Jewish Christians committed to Jewish cultural practices. But notice the Jerusalem's elders, their, their humility as they offer this solution and their desire to support Paul in his ministry. They are concerned first and foremost with the unity of the church with keeping the church united around the gospel. And so they come up with this plan to help preserve the church's unity. And Paul willingly says, that's a great plan. Let's do it. He participates in it. And that leads to a third area here, that third lesson in terms of how do we handle differing consciences within the church. You have to use your Christian liberty to serve the unity of the church. Use your Christian liberty to serve the unity of the church. So you might have this question going on in your mind right now as we're reading this text, as we're talking about what Paul did. Did Paul compromise his gospel convictions by participating in the purification rite or for paying for the offerings of those believers who were going under the Nazarite vow? I don't think he does. In fact, I think this seems to be right in line with Paul's mission strategy and his practice of Christian liberty. And again, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is a key text here in terms of understanding how Paul is operating here in Jerusalem. So look at 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not my, being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul engages in these rituals to appease Jewish consciences and to preserve the church's unity around the gospel. So notice Paul is free in Jesus not to participate in these rituals, but he chooses to participate he chooses to submit to the elders' proposals as an effort to preserve unity around the gospel. So grounded in his Christian liberty, Paul chose to become as one under the law that he might win those under the law. Paul's Christian liberty was never used for selfish indulgence so that he can exert a sort of divisive my way or the highway sort of attitude I'm free in Christ, I'm doing it my way, but rather he saw his freedom in the Lord Jesus, that it allowed him to be this sort of cultural chameleon, minimizing any obstacle that might sidetrack from the preaching of the gospel. I think as Christians, we must have this attitude. We must think of our Christian liberty like Paul, 
We must choose to have this sort of humble, unity-driven exercise of our Christian liberty. So when we choose to enforce our own opinions, when we choose to do things according to our own preferences, and we insist upon it in a domineering sort of way, we're going to distract from the gospel. Often we have to hold our tongues. We have to deny ourselves and our preferences for the good of the church's unity. It's what we as Christians do for one another. COVID-19 has allowed us to deny our preferences for the unity of Christ's church. Churches, pastors, members, Christians all across the country, everyone is, is responding a little bit differently to these pressures that we face this year. And of course, leaders, they have to make decisions on these matters. And overall, I'm incredibly grateful for how little grumbling I've heard this year over these decisions our elders have made about this. And even if you might have different opinions and preferences on them, but we have to be so very careful, don't we? Very careful of not judging each other's hearts over these matters. Whether you are a person in our church gathering in person or whether you're watching online, whether you are for face masks or whether you are against them, whether you think we as elders have moved too quickly in gathering or have been too slow to gather, whether you think that we are capitulating to, to government overreach or rightly submitting to our governing authorities, no matter what's your opinion, we have to be so careful here, don't we? Use your liberty in, a, in Christ as a way to serve your brothers and sisters. And that means using your liberty to preserve the unity of the body. You see, church unity ought to be one of the primary uses of our Christian liberty. Harmony is the goal, not defiance. Love, not divisiveness. So I think Paul and his example shows us a good deal about what it means to, to deal with some of the clashing consciences we deal with in the local church. But there's a second question I think this text helps answer for us. How do we deal with hostile consciences in the culture? What do we do with them? What do we do with a culture that seems to be antagonistic towards us as believers? And again, like the first point, I think there's three lessons to be learned here from Paul's example. The first is that we have to expect malicious slander. Expect malicious slander. So Paul goes to the temple. He goes to, to, to put into place the plan to assist the consciences of his fellow Jewish Christians. And the plan goes bad, big time. It goes awry. And so the seven days were almost complete. And then Luke tells us that there were some Jews from Asia there. Most likely these were Jews from Ephesus who had traveled to Jerusalem. They remember Paul in Ephesus. They, rem they remember seeing the riot that had taken place in the city. And so they see that Paul is now in Jerusalem. And when they see Paul, they cry out like Paul's some sort of axe murderer, right? Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. I mean, they are provoked by Paul's presence. They're offended and of course, they begin to make accusations about Paul in his ministry, accusations that just aren't true. 
Gentiles are not allowed to enter to the inner courts of the temple. That was an offense that would be at penalty of death. Paul would not be so foolish to draw such unnecessary attention. However, the accusation by the Jews from Asia was enough to rile up those in the temple into a mob. And so this mob forms, and we're told that they drag Paul out of the temple. They're getting ready to, to kill him. And thankfully, the Roman tribune with his armed soldiers intervened, breaking up the mob and, and, and ultimately rescuing Paul from death. And so in fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy, if you remember from last week, we're told that the Romans arrest him in two chains. So the tribune tried to figure out what was going on. After all, he just saw a mob was forming. He sent his soldiers to break it up. He does not know what the commotion is all about, but the crowd is, is too rowdy for him to hear. Everybody's shouting things. So he, he tries to bring Paul out of the crowd to protect him and also figure out what's happening. And so he brings Paul to the barracks, and it seems that Paul was so beat up, even from the mob's, uh, mob mentality, that he struggled to walk and that he needed the help of the soldiers to be carried. And so the cry of the mob eerily echoes that of Jesus, doesn't it? Away with him, gone with him. They want him dead. So as Christians, I think we have to expect that people are going to misunderstand us in our culture. They're going to slander us. They're going to attack us. Our Christian convictions as believers who stand upon the authority of God's word, they're going to seem increasingly scandalous to our secular age. But there are many of our moral convictions that we hold to as Christians that are out of step with our culture. <clears throat> you can name a few. Our commitment to the sanctity of human life, to the life of the unborn, it's out of step with our culture. The goodness of God's equal but differing designs for his creation of both male and female, that's out of step with our culture today. The biblical vision of marriage, which is exclusively defined as a covenant relationship between a man and a woman for a lifetime, that's out of step with our culture. Our conviction that Jesus is the only way to God and that humanity needs salvation, and that Jesus is the only Savior, that's out of step with our culture. So as we commit ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ and commit ourselves to the Scripture's authority, we have to expect that the culture is going to spin that and accuse us of hating those who disagree with us. They're going to accuse us of arrogance and subverting the common good. Such accusations. I pray, are patently false about us. But yet, as our culture continues to rebel against God's design, so fundamental to our flourishing, we, we will experience the wrath of our culture. The mob may not attack us, but we may find our voices canceled, shut down, or protested. As Christians engaging a culture hostile to the gospel, I think we see in Paul's example, we should expect, we shouldn't be surprised by malicious slander. But secondly, we see Paul defend himself from false attacks with charity and clarity. And again, I think this is something we need to take away from this, that as we're engaging in this hostile culture, we have to defend ourselves. It's not wrong to defend ourselves from false attacks, but we must do so with charity and with clarity. 
So Paul converses with the tribune. The officer officer thinks that Paul must be some sort of Egyptian false prophet who led a revolt. And again, all this is according and verified by the, the Jewish historian Josephus. Again, the tribune has no idea who this guy Paul is and why there's such a commotion about him. And so Paul replies, I've got nothing to do with that. I'm not a revolutionary. Instead, I'm a guy from Tarsus. And and so he asked the tribune for permission to speak to the crowd of people. And so then he begins to raise his voice after getting permission. Paul raises his voice in the Hebrew tongue as a Jew, speaking to his brothers and sisters, his Jewish family. And as Paul gives this speech to the Jews, he is testifying of Jesus, and he's also defending himself from the false accusations being thrown out about him. That, that Paul is a man who has disregarded the law of God. And so the speech that Paul gives is biographical with Paul sharing his testimony, but, but he also sprinkles along the way, if you paid attention, that, that even though he's a Christian, he's not casting aside Judaism. Instead, he's showing us that, that Christ fulfills the scriptures. And so Paul, in this speech, after just getting beaten nearly to death, speaks with such incredible calm particularly after experiencing that violent attack from the mob. And so he shows us that as we make defense for ourselves, we must respond with charity and clarity. So how, what are some ways we see Paul defending himself from this speech? Well, there's a few things here, right? He mentions his Jewish credentials as he starts speaking. Talks about his education at the feet of the great rabbi Gamaliel. According, he says, to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So again, I'm a Jew. I was born and raised a Jew who believed in the Torah and observed it. I was under one of the best teachers that we've had. I've sat under his feet. He also talks about how he, he with zeal, led to persecute the way, which was the name for the Christian movement. And then he also talks about how he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. If you look at verse 12, he talks about he met Ananias, A Christian, he says, who was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. So Paul makes these sort of comments as he shares his testimony to try to help the people understand that even though he's preaching Christ, Christ does not abolish the law, but he fulfills the law. Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul's encounter with Jesus changed him. And as Jewish Christians, Paul is is not seeking to do away with Jewish cultural heritage, but he is arguing instead that salvation comes through Jesus, not through the observance of the law. And as Paul shares his testimony, he begins to sprinkle in these comments to defend himself from these false accusations made against him. But thirdly, I think the greatest lesson that we can learn from Paul here in terms of how do we engage with a hostile culture, is to testify to the power and call of Christ in your life. Just tell people what God has done in your life. Share the good news of Jesus, what he had done for you. You see, Paul gives a testimony. Everything changed for Paul after his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. You see, Jesus had awakened within Paul, helped him to see that he needed a Savior, that he had opened up his eyes to the reality that Jesus is risen, he is alive, Jesus was the Messiah, and now Paul believed that Jesus had called him and beckoned him to preach 
about the gospel. And so the Lord had called Paul to be a witness of the resurrection. You see, Paul's encounter with Jesus was a transformation. And again, we've seen that transformation in the book of Acts in Paul's life. And so Paul includes this testimony, right, of this vision that he received in the temple with the Lord uniquely calling him to devote his focus on Gentile missions. And we stopped reading at the very end of the speech, but if you go on into those next couple verses, we'll see that as soon as, as Paul mentions the Lord's call in his life to take the gospel to the Gentiles, it's at that point the crowd stops listening anymore. The thought of God including the Gentiles in the promises of salvation, that was an idea that repulsed the Jews. But yet as we seek to engage the culture, I think we can learn a good deal from Paul's example here. Yeah, he's expecting those accusations, slanderously so. Yes, he, he, he does respond with charity and clarity as he defends himself from those accusations. But above all, I think, we can learn from Paul's example of testifying to the work of God's grace in your life and in mine. We expect those slanderous attacks. We give a charitable defense as best as we can. We want to try to minimize any stumbling block when it comes to the gospel. But keep in mind that even as you share the gospel, as you share the work of God in your own life, as you share how Jesus has saved you, the gospel will offend hostile consciences. So keep testifying. Keep sharing Jesus. Proclaim the risen King. Tell others of Christ's call upon your life. You see, as Christians, I think that ought to be our goal, to mitigate any offense as much as possible so that the gospel is clear to those to whom we're sharing. <coughs> so within the church, that means that we use our Christian liberty to preserve the church's unity, not obsessing over differences or matters of inconsequential opinion. Instead, we unite together as a family in humility and in love for the advancement of the gospel. And within the culture, that means we speak with, with clarity and charity even when we are personally attacked and we testify of the gospel to those hostile against us. See, if Paul's life models anything, it shows us that we must make the gospel central in our interactions with other people, in the church and outside of the church. So examine your own life carefully this morning. Do your words and do your actions focus on Jesus? Are your conversations with others in the church, are they encouraging further unity in Christ or are they hindering that unity? In your interactions with a hostile culture, are you unnecessarily provocative or do you speak with clarity and charity as you testify of the gospel? You see, even in these polarizing times, I pray that Redemption Church would be known for our commitment to unite around the good news as we seek to testify to the world of Jesus. And let's pray and let's ask God to help us in just that. Father, we are grateful for our time together this morning in your word. And Father, we're grateful for Paul's example. Lord, we know that in so many ways, we live in a culture 
engulfed by conflict right now. And Father, that conflict has even made its way into the church over matters of consciences and different opinions and preferences. And Lord, in this very disruptive year of 2020, you have given us opportunity to exercise love for one another, to exercise patience with one another. Lord, you have given us the opportunity to use our Christian liberty for the preservation of unity and the work of the gospel. Lord, help us as a church to be centered upon Christ, to be centered upon his wondrous work of grace. Father, we are grateful for Jesus, and we're grateful for your salvation. And we're grateful, Lord, that you have united us together. And Lord, we do pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we learn to interact and engage with a hostile culture. Father, we pray that we would not cease to testify of Jesus or even through slanderous accusations or that we would be faithful. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for even those who are here this morning, Lord, that if they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would help them to see, Lord, that he is a wondrous Savior. Lord, that they would repent of their sins and so call out in faith to Jesus, who alone can save. Lord, I pray that the way Paul's life would be transformed would be evident in all of the, our lives, those of us who have been called and saved by Jesus. So, Father, we pray, Lord, that for those who are lost, who are hard-hearted, who are blinded in their sin, Lord, that you would save and redeem Father, we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we seek to navigate the complexities of our days. And Lord, that you would find us faithful to Jesus, even in the year 2020. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.